there's no question that you need international organizations. It is the week of October 5th, and welcome to episode 45 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jody Herman, former staff director at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, returning guest Andy Kaiser, a fellow at NSI and a former senior advisor to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and myself, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director and the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, the UN turns 75, and the General Assembly just finished up last week, albeit quite differently than before. The United States has had quite a contentious relationship with the UN during the Trump administration. At times, the president has pushed to defund parts of the UN, but has also tried to use organs of the UN to force snapback of sanctions on Iran and for other purposes. Dana, you thought we should talk about the UN this week. Tell us about how the UN works, and what storylines are you following when it comes to Congress and the UN and the administration and the UN? Thanks so much, Jamil. So the reason I thought it was important to talk about it is because just last week, a huge event that normally grabs headlines across the world called UNGA, the UN General Assembly, which meets for this big diplomatic circuit once a year, happens in September, and it just happened. And it really didn't make any headlines. You had to work really hard to find news coverage, especially in American media outlets, of the big UNGA meeting. Why is that? Because it didn't happen in person this year due to COVID. Almost all world leaders pre-recorded their addresses to the UN General Assembly. I'm going to call it UNGA from now on. President Trump refused on, on the day that his pre-recorded address was supposed to be aired. Ultimately, he did the following day. Um, but it tells you something about where we are internationally, that the largest, most relevant multilateral institution or really constellation of multilateral bodies barely broke headlines here in this country. And just to remind our listeners here, the United States heavily supported the creation of the United Nations system after World War II. We have talked a lot about the post-World War II global order and the U.S. role in it on this podcast. And the entire point of the U.N.'s founding was to prevent another world war and provide a platform for international cooperation to address the world's problems. Normally, UNGA is like this huge cocktail party diplomatic circuit. Normally in a secretary, the State Department, you have diplomats angling for who's going to get to be in the delegation that goes up to New York. All the hotels across New York City where the United Nations is headquartered are booked out. There are endless numbers of multilateral engagements, bilateral engagements, etc. This year, you know, we've talked a lot about how uh, on this podcast, there are a lot of disagreements about how we should address the problems in the world. And some of them, in my view, are so significant and so large that they do require multilateral responses. And COVID is the most urgent example. Indeed, this year, the theme of UNGA was confronting COVID-19 through effective multilateral action. And I would say it's really hard to see where effective multilateral action is taking place this year. It's not just because of the Trump administration's animosity towards the United Nations. There are a lot of reasons for that. And I'm sure we'll get into that in this podcast. So just to take a quick step back, what is the UN? When, when we talk about the UN, you normally hear about UNGA, the General Assembly with that beautiful, oddly green marbling in the background, the big diocese, the world leaders up there. Then you hear about the UN Security Council, the UNSC. But there's actually tons of other specialized agencies and organizations doing all sorts of work. Every 
everything from peacekeeping. There are actually 13 United Nations peacekeeping missions across the world with over 80,000 peacekeeping forces from various nations contributing to these peacekeeping nations. The World Health Organization, the IAEA responsible for the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, UN Development Agency, UN Human Rights Council, the list goes on and on and on of how many different bodies and organizations are under the UN umbrella doing various work. And Congress has taken a very active role here. So since this is the Fault Lines podcast and we talk about where the political right and left come together or diverge on issues of foreign policy, let's just take a step back and review some of the top issues that Congress talks about or focuses on when it thinks about the United Nations. First of all, it's funding. So the United States remains the top donor to the United Nations, and that's both through standard every year allocations called the assess budget and then voluntary contributions, which are the sprinkles and cherries on top of the standard U.S. contribution every year to the U.N. And without that money, which I think makes up about 25% of the U.N.'s operating budget every year, all of the functions that I'm talking about, WHO, IAEA, peacekeeping, U.N. development program, et cetera, wouldn't take place. The U.N. and its functions are only possible if countries continue to fund the United Nations. The Trump administration has consistently attempted every single fiscal year to cut funding to the United Nations, both that standard contribution, the annual, the assessed, and the voluntary contributions. And Congress has consistently funded the United Nations and our contributions to the UN, which shows you that even though there are disagreements between Republicans and Democrats in Congress, a few of which I'm just about to itemize, there is a baseline of support of bipartisan consensus that multilateral actions and programs through the United Nations remains relevant to this day. So here are some of the issues that come up when it when it relates to the United Nations. First of all, how is our money being spent? If the U.S. is the top donor to the United Nations, shouldn't we have more direction and input into how that money is spent? Another hot button one is anti-Israel bias among many of the United Nations institutions and agencies and also to which agencies the Palestinians gain membership. And there's all sorts of ways in which Congress has passed legislation that if certain UN organizations accept Palestine as a member state, then U.S. funding will be cut. Another huge area of congressional concern is corruption. Um, So how the different organizations are spending money, different kinds of abuses, sex trafficking, et cetera, that are happening, for example, when our peacekeeping missions are going on. Another huge issue is human rights. Which countries, despite their egregious human rights records in their own countries, are members of bodies responsible for highlighting human rights abuses globally, et cetera. So these are all issues that Congress is debating on a pretty consistent basis when it comes to UN, U.S. membership in the United Nations system, how we can push for reform and both streamlining effectiveness, greater transparency in funding, and also use these organizations to better achieve goals such as COVID response. And I should also highlight that right now, there's a huge debate going on as to because the United States in many ways is pulling back from its commitments or its diplomatic focus on the United Nations as a center of gravity for addressing many of the really tough multilateral challenges facing the global order, China really sees some opportunities in the United Nations system. So through funding, through leadership, through more active activist stances and membership in the various bodies and, and agencies, China sees this as a major form for competition, specifically with the United United States. And so how the U.S. responds going forward as it pushes for certain areas of reform, as it pushes for 
whittling out anti-Israel bias, et cetera, is an area that I think Congress will continue to focus attention on. So, uh, you know, Andy, I'm interested to know, you know, Dana raised some important issues about funding um, and sovereignty when it comes to the U.S., the Trump administration's views on uh, the U.N. Help us understand where these fault lines are between the parties, between Congress, the administration, when it comes to the funding of U.N. agencies, um, and the question of whether the U.S. is sort of giving away too much power to the U.N. and whether we need to reassert some of that. We've seen the administration really interested in not really operating multilaterally, but really focusing on you know, bilateral relations, whether it's in Asia or in Europe. Uh, we've really been focused on bilateral engagement. That clearly translates to the U.N. What are the fault lines when it comes to Capitol Hill and the administration on these issues? Yeah, thanks. I do think there's a bit of a, a difference, and it's based largely upon sort of where the the base of support lies for for each party right so if if you look at, at Republican party particularly under President Trump its strengths are in more the rural areas who are less likely to travel internationally less likely to subscribe to you know sort of globalism being a, a source for good uh, and instead is one that you know forces us to hand over cash and authority to unelected bureaucrats in in Brussels or other institutions that might not always align with their sort of views. I do think the United States is in a, is in an interesting position vis-a-vis the rest of the world with in this respect. Something like 25% of US citizens have a passport. So, you know, three quarters of the country has no interest in in leaving anytime soon, which is about two to one, three to one, sometimes four to one difference as to say the Europeans who are much closer proximity to other countries, more prone to travel in the rest. So you can see just by our founding, and of course we broke away from the largest global power at the time to kind of do our own thing. It's sort of a bit in our DNA. So that that is some of it. And then I do think as, as Dana was alluding to, over time, some of the the membership of the UN or the proposals or the anti, uh, certainly Israel bias has over time eroded support further. Um, I do think this administration, this president, Secretary Pompeo, have not sort of been paralyzed by that need to find global consensus on some of these really difficult problems that have vexed uh, the international community for, for decades. Um, in looking to make maybe incremental progress, I, I, I look at the situation in, in the Middle East where we have had a you know sort of a, a slight thawing uh, between Arab nations and, and Israel, for example, that we hadn't seen in decades past. Certainly not a by any means an end all be all. Obviously, the Palestinians are not at the table at all. The Saudis have not signed up to this uh, to recognizing Israel, formalizing diplomatic relations, but the fact that we do have three new Arab countries for the first time recognizing Israel's right to exist, uh, you know, having flights in between diplomatic exchanges um, does send, a, I, I think, a, a, a pretty important message and I think is exactly where this administration is trying to go. Another example might be the situation in China, instead of trying to align the entire world or, or go through the UN to crack down on some of their abuses, push back on some of their expansionism. The administration is much more focused on finding allies like India, fostering, strengthening relationships with countries like Japan and South Korea and Vietnam to push back where we can uh, to make that incremental progress. You're seeing it in Europe. You're seeing it with some mixed results in places like Africa, but the Asia Pacific has been 
I think, quite strong in response. Now, a lot of this is due to the Chinese government and the CCP's own actions, of course, where they make it easy to come to this conclusion. But some credit, I do think, has to be given to the focus of priority on uh, on this by the administration. So how about that, Dana? And I, I do want to talk to Jody about these human rights issues and some of these, uh, some of the sort of anti-Israel issues. But, but Dana, what about this point that Andy made, which is, do we really need the UN anymore? I and mean, we've been doing fine uh, getting our allies uh, involved against China in particular. The WHO, the World Health Organization, was ineffectual when it came to COVID. Why do we need the UN and all of its institutions and all the money we pour in there? We can do these things bilaterally. You know, we can uh, work with our allies in Asia and, and frankly, the non-aligned countries like India, which has been a key member of the non-aligned movement, as they're starting to see the problem of China on their border. Why don't we just do these bilateral things and uh, push back on China and Russia and Iran? I mean, the UN has failed, I think it's fair to say, when it comes to some of these issues. Should we just give it up? So, Jamil, I think it depends on how you think of the United Nations and the role of the United Nations. Like, it wasn't necessarily created to solve every global problem, nor do I think the founders thought that it would, right? Like, it is a diplomatic center and diplomacy matters, right? So conversations are held at the UN. They're frequently contentious, but leaders return home. They recall those con- those conversations and accountability matters. Like no country likes to have to show up at the UN to defend itself, but you know what? They have to, like they have to walk into those rooms, whether that's at the Security Council or in bilateral and multilateral meetings, and they have to show up and defend their violations of rights or other overt actions that they're taking. And it puts them on the spot. Like I don't think that we always can appreciate based on you know, exactly what comes out of the UN, the impact that it has on on global conversations, right? So the whole rationale behind the UN was to create a system or a place where people could look at the issues of peace and security and think about whether or not on the biggest issues of any moment, whether or not there was an alternate way to resolve them other than going to war, right? Remember, for everybody listening, right, that the the UN came out of uh, two world wars, right? And if you look at the preamble, what it says is its purpose is to practice tolerance and live together with one another as good neighbors and to unite our strength to maintain international peace and security. I don't think anybody thought then, and I certainly don't think now, that it's there to solve every global issue that arises. So, Jody, I, that all makes sense to me. But I guess the question is, and I think this is the question that Congress is debating and sort of caught up in is, is that debating society and this diplomatic institution where people are called to account worth $10 billion a year? I mean, that's the well, fundamental question. By that argument, Jamil, you wouldn't need a State Department. I mean, if that was your argument, you also might not need a State Department, right? I mean, if you don't believe in the value of diplomacy in having conversations, bilateral and multilateral conversations, then you can just, might as well just invest the entire State Department budget in, in the defense budget and just conduct our, you know, diplomacy or conduct our international engagements that way, which is frankly increasingly the case in any case. Again, I may be a fan for moving some State Department money to DOD, but I'm not going to disagree with you that the State Department needs to exist and we need to have a strong diplomatic mission, 100%. I guess the question is, if you're right, and, and it's your words, not mine, right, where you're saying, hey, look, the UN doesn't do a whole lot, right, in the sense of- I did not say they don't do a whole lot. I said they don't solve every issue, right? There's a big okay. difference. Like, I want you to instead imagine that there is no United Nations, right? There is no forcing mechanism for countries on any global issue. There is no forcing mechanism. There is no reckoning. There is no human rights council. 
as imperfect as it is, right, there is no mechanism internationally for countries to have to come together and talk to each other. What does okay, that look, look like? I, fair enough. I, I, I'm interested to hear what Dana and, and Andy think about this because, you know, I mean, I can't believe you raised the Human Rights Council of all the UN bodies to pick as an example. Yeah, of that. No. That, that is a council populated by the biggest human rights violators it, 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 on it the is, globe. The Human Rights Council is, of course, highly problematic, right? Like if you look at its constitution right now, you've got the Congo, Philippines, Venezuela, Qatar, others who are on the on the Human Rights Council at the moment. I, it is highly imperfect. And yet I would still argue that that painful, tedious and imperfect council still does something to mitigate conflict and abuses by forcing people to have to speak to those issues in front of other people. And it allows for conversations to happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. To be clear, we should fix it. Dana? So before I talk about the Human Rights Council, I just want to touch on a lot of the issues where U.S. funding to a U.N. organization to do certain kinds of work is actually pennies on the dollar. It actually serves U.S. taxpayer interests to contribute to a pooled mechanism to fund something that we may not want to do bilaterally, that we may not want to invest the diplomatic energy and having to corral everybody else to do in a U.S.-led coalition always. So here are a few examples. The UN Development Program, UNDP, runs all sorts of programs um, in areas where we either the United States cannot operate, don't want to operate, don't want to run the entire program, don't want to deal with the headaches of funding allocation. A good example is Iraq. In Iraq, there's a UN assistance mission. There's a very large UN development program effort to help all of the communities recover from ISIS. And the UN assistance mission to Iraq, otherwise known as UNAMI, is the prime body through which the Iraqi government will receive assistance in planning its elections for next year. And the U.S. has expressed tremendous confidence in UNAMI and committed to funding UNAMI, which means that we don't have to do it ourselves. Another example of a really tough diplomatic nut to crack where we either can't be in the lead or wouldn't be effective being in the lead is the war in Yemen and being a convener to all sides to attempt to engage in a diplomatic process. The United States is not going to fly to the capital of Yemen, Sana'a, and meet with the rebel movement that's taken over the capital and commits egregious human rights violations all the time, the Houthis, right? But instead, we have a UN special envoy. And that person, who there's been many, but the current one has worked painstakingly. He can talk to every different stakeholder to this conflict. He's on the cusp of negotiating a huge prisoner exchange. And I would argue that's something that the that the U.S. couldn't have done on its own. And another good example is despite the tremendous amount of investment and pushing and prodding that the United States sometimes has to do on a certain issue, when a U.N. body or an international body speaks with authority about a violation, for example, the IAEA in Iran. I can't believe I'm bringing up Iran because Jamil is going to give us like a five-minute diatribe on something. But when the IAEA says, not just the United States or not just Israel, that Iran has done something uh, nefarious at a certain site or has blocked inspector access, it carries so much more weight than when the United States does it itself. Now, that doesn't mean that it takes a lot of effort to get the IAEA to a place where they're going to issue that judgment and that announcement, but it has standing. And when the IAEA or one of these bodies accuses an actor of malign actions or whatever it is, it matters. And same with the Security Council. When you actually get consensus on a resolution at the Security Council, 
Council, it matters. And it's really hard. And there's a lot of reasons why the Security Council isn't working quite effectively right now. But when you get the Security Council to speak out and issue a resolution or issue a condemnation, or there's a Secretary General's report on a specific set of really bad actions, like violations of an arms embargo, it really, really matters. And so the question here for the United States is, even though there are very serious problems with various functions and budgeting actions, anti-Israel bias, human rights related to the UN, do you throw out the whole system or do you attempt to push for reform and change within the system? And I would argue at this point in time, given the severity and complexity of the challenges facing the world right now, from COVID to global economic recession to climate change, et cetera, there is a role for multilateral action and the UN provides a platform. So Andy, how about that? I mean, Dana points out that, look, there are a lot of big problems the U.S. can't or doesn't want to solve on its own. We might as well spend some of our money on doing that multilaterally. The UN's a good place to do that. Yes, it's $10 billion, but not all that goes to, you know, just diplomacy and conversations and, you know, fancy parties, right? Some of it goes to actual boots on the ground, you know, with with the elections and the like. And so maybe there's some marginal value here that we should keep alive. But is it worth the $10 billion, Andy? If, If it's worth less, how much? Uh, what's the right approach? And by the way, you know, Dana raises a good point. She's like, when the Security Council can all come together and agree on something. But of course, the Security Council has the five permanent members, of which we are one. They exercise a veto. Nothing substantive, except for once in a rare while, it gets done. And is it really effective? A lot of nations are saying, well, we need to broaden it. And you get rid of the veto. That would actually hurt the United States in some ways, some ways benefit us. There's no question that you need international organizations to do exactly what Dana has outlined, which is provide a forum for discussion of these difficult issues, occasionally a platform by which there can be some successful resolution. But really, if, if, you, if you're being objective and fair and you take a step back and look at the United Nations efficacy on the biggest problems facing the world, I think you have to admit the record's pretty mixed. Um, so. You know, obviously on the Security Council, we have our challenges with with Russia and China being permanent members, so can veto uh, any actions against their own gross violations, of which has certainly occurred in recent years when we had the Russia's invasion of an occupation of uh, 20% of the country of Georgia. They're still there, by the way. Occupied and invaded Crimea. They're still there, by the way, with very little action from the UN other than I think there was a, a resolution that was passed. Um, certainly confronting China. I, I do think probably it's an abomination and, and a stain on, on all of us that there's been no major global international action on the the situation in Shenzhen with the you know ethnic cleansing essentially of the Uyghur population minority Muslim group where uh, one to two million uh, Uyghur Muslims are imprisoned and the Chinese government is attempting to quote change their thoughts which is pretty Orwellian stuff but it's happening today and in, in at least what I heard out of the UN when it convened remotely from UNGA was was not a whole lot on this I do think there are other places where they are essential and, and, and maybe the only place where something like this works. Dana mentioned several. Um, the situation with the COVID response, I think Jamil's going to get into later in the show, but surely we need international institutions to uh, share best, best practices, um, share data, share information. I think it's a big mistake to pull out of the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic. That doesn't make much sense to me. I think there are fair criticisms about how the World Health Organization responded 
but you want to be at that table, I think. In situations like we just have with Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, where a, a functioning UN might be the only place where you can uh, get folks with lots of competing interests. You have the Russians on one side and the, the Iranians and the Turks and the US and the French and others on different sides. You do need those bodies to be able to convene and try to work through differences. Who knew Andy was such a multilateralist? Uh, Jody, listen, I, I want to talk about human rights. And I want to talk about this, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is, you know, I think widely regarded as the paradigmatic example of a agreement amongst the world's nations, including the United States, that demonstrates our commitment uh, to to sort of unalienable rights. And the UN uh, released a report on alien, unalienable rights. The US released a report on unalienable rights uh, this fall. And, um, but we saw these countries that signed on to this uh, as an interesting collection of largely non-democratic states. What's, what's up there? Um, where does the UN stand on, on its human rights agenda? I, I don't think this was even a, a UN issue per se, but it was a really interesting story in the political sense, which is human rights is usually an easy card for the United States to play. We play it all over the world uh, and people expect that of us. So this fall, the administration, the State Department released this unalienable rights report, which was heavily criticized by the broader human rights community in the United States for its minimization of certain rights, women's rights, gender, LGBTQ rights, and a focus on a smaller set of unalienable rights, most notably religious and property rights. Several human rights organizations have even sued the State Department to prevent it from relying on the report as a basis for its policy action. So initially, state before UNGA uh, tried to get other countries to sign on to this report, and they and they couldn't. And so they abandoned that approach when they didn't get traction and instead focused on collecting support for a statement recognizing the 74th anniversary of the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which should have been an easy lift, right? But instead, what happened is because it was this kind of rededication to the Declaration of Human Rights was really a sub for the administration's unalienable rights report, they basically couldn't get anybody or certainly not any of our usual liberal democratic allies to sign on to this report. Instead, you saw the U.S. releasing a statement with a group of states that included Libya, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the Congo, the Philippines, and not the U.K., Germany, France, Australia, and our other liberal democratic allies. And it was just a really bizarre moment where you know, it seems clear to me when they didn't get the traction they want, they probably should have stepped away, but it ended up being a rather bizarre uh, outcome for the United States to be acting on such an issue of such importance to us historically, but without our allies. Well, but Jody, does that say more about the irresoluteness of our allies. At the end of the day, they were not asked to sign off on the unalienable rights declaration, whatever you think about or, or report by the State Department. They were asked to sign off on a commemoration of this platform that they purport to really believe in. May it actually be the case that our allies have sort of softened up their commitment to that and really we are the only nation remaining that's actually committed to the core of those values? I don't think so. I think our usual friends and allies on these types of issues understood the underlying situation and just decided to not get involved. In fact, I think they were hoping that the administration would step away from it, but they didn't. And so instead you end up with this like just really bizarre uh, dynamic of the U.S. being in alliance with a whole bunch of countries that are not, you know, democratic or certainly not um, known to be uh, 
thoughtful uh, in the arena of human rights, aligning themselves with the U.S. on a human rights declaration. It was it was a pretty bizarre situation. So uh, one of the issues, obviously, that we're still continuing to fight with the with the U.N. and our allies about at the U.N. Uh, is this issue of Iran sanctioned snapback, right? The U.S. has uh, pulled mm. out of the Iran nuclear deal, but yet is still a party to the U.N. resolution and part of the U.N. and the U.N. resolution that's binding on the U.N. members. Uh, Iran is obviously in violation of the agreement, they say, because the U.S. backed out. And so they're continuing to now exceed the, the requirements. Uh, that would mean typically that the sanctions all come back and all the prior resolutions come back into force. Uh, the U.S. has made that argument there. And of course, prior to this, the U.S. sought to reinstate the arms embargo and our allies, just like on the anniversary of the human rights declaration, uh, instead of actually testing a yes or no vote, they all abstain on whether we should uh, maintain the arms embargo on Iran, which is set to expire if nothing happens, if snapback doesn't happen, uh, putting the U.S. in this position. Uh, Dana, what's up here? Are our allies just irresolute? Is this different? Are they seeing something you know, that's different here, like Jody said on the on the human rights uh, issue, it was really about this unalienable rights thing. Is this about another thing because we backed out? Or is it about the arms of Oregon, which I think everybody agrees should remain in place? So, yeah, look, it, it should be sort of straightforward that Iran, and, and frankly, there's been consistent reports from the UN Secretary General that Iran has consistently violated other arms embargoes by illegally and illicitly providing weapons, shipping uh, other forms of military aid to other groups and other conflicts. But I think this is a really good example of the dumpster fire that is Trump administration diplomacy. So an effective way of working on this. So first of all, the arms embargo and the discussions about extending the arms embargo didn't happen in a vacuum about arms embargo and, and isolating Iran as the bad actor here. For a long time now, the Trump administration has essentially isolated itself by not shoring up its partnerships with the European countries in order to have some sort of collective action at the Security Council and more broadly. And obviously, if it's not aligned with the European European countries certainly hasn't reached any sort of alignment with Russia and China, the other permanent members of the Security Council, for the kind of collective action that would be needed to to extend the arms embargo. And secondly, the arms embargo is, and the sunsetting of the arms embargo is part of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the Iran Nuclear Agreement. And there's huge disputes about the Iran Nuclear Agreement. The Trump administration unilaterally withdrew from that agreement. And so now we're stuck in this legal discussion as to whether or not if a nation pulled out of this agreement, it can then go to the Security Council and try to force everybody else to also abandon the agreement. Um, and so what's happened here is rather than going through the very quick, patient, very quiet diplomacy that might have been necessary to get to some sort of collective action on the set of issues, the United States has been isolated and the Security Council process is essentially broken which I would argue doesn't serve U.S. national security interests, nor does it serve the effectiveness of the Security Council on any other issue going forward. Yeah, I, I think the situation with Iran is really concerning. Like, we're almost in the worst position imaginable, right? Like, we don't have a, a really a deal anymore to curb Iran's nuclear ambitions, even if we didn't like the deal. Uh, Iran started to enrich. We're not in a position to utilize sanctions because multilateralism is broken, and that was the key to isolating Iran. And we've shown gaps 
in in our alliances between the U.S. and our and our closest allies, uh, and made them both larger and more transparent enemies. Like I, I really like I can't imagine a situation uh, that could be worse vis-a-vis uh, our you know Iran's many concerning activities and our ability to like use our friends and allies uh, to take necessary actions to stop them. Important points. A challenge, obviously, the U.N. Iran. I mean, there there can't be enough issues that we might debate about Iran and with the general. Assembly having just wrapped up last week, um, or at least the general meetings, there are more event, more things take place in the 75th meeting of the UN General Assembly here in the next few months. I think this is an issue we'll, we'll return to. And now it's the time of in our show where we all talk about things that we're looking at that are happening in the news. So over to you, Dana, first for uh, a story you're tracking that might be undercovered. I think undercovered that I am tracking is the administration's threat to close its embassy in Baghdad uh, because the government in Baghdad, the Iraqi government is not taking what the Trump administration views as sufficient um, action to rein in Iran-backed militia attacks. So first of all, um, there's a huge diplomatic uh, embassy security issue here, which is actually one that many of us here as former staffers of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will remember working on in terms of what's an acceptable level of risk and how can we take steps to minimize that risk. There's obviously responsibility by the host nation inside which the U.S. embassy exists to provide certain kinds of security. And in Iraq, it's just complicated. Part of this is about what are both the capabilities and the political will of the Iraqi security forces who the U.S. has trained for years now to take on these Iran-backed, supported, aligned militias without tipping Iraq into a civil war? Um, But secondly, it raises the questions of what do we have embassies for? And embassies are a platform for engagement, economics, assistance, oversight, uh, strategic messaging from the United States, also a platform for security aid, uh, for intelligence collection, et cetera. And so I think there's a major question here as to who is actually gets punished by the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad shutting down. Is it Iraq? Is it Iran? Or is it actually the United States? And so this is an issue that I'm closely watching. Great. Thanks, Dana. Jody, over to you. Yeah, so I'm not sure that this issue is, is so hidden, but it just struck me when I was uh, reading the news this morning, and it ties into our UN conversation, which is the announcement by the World Health Organization today that 10% of people around the globe have probably contracted COVID, right? So, you know, this UN General Assembly was supposed to be all about how do we work together to prevent this, uh, the further spread of the pandemic. Uh, And this is just to say, like, clearly, we aren't like 35 million people have been confirmed. And the WHO estimate actually puts the true figure at closer to 800 million people globally. It makes me wonder whether or not uh, we're going to be returning to our, our normal reality anytime soon. So like accompanying that, of course, you've got Donald Trump in the hospital. Um, you know, uh, France is going back to, to closing businesses, restaurants and bars. The Spain has put Madrid under a new lockdown, uh, banning residents from, from non-essential travel. And Iran also has another huge uh, outbreak and, and a new set of fatalities related to COVID. So uh, I actually think, you know, not so hidden, but really makes the point about why why we need multilateral agencies and be need to be able to coordinate multilaterally to address something that is clearly a threat to everybody around the globe. Thanks, Jody. Uh, Andy, over to you. Sure. So uh, the, the one I'm tracking today impacts everyone's phone in their pocket. So uh, last week was a, a bit of a busy news week, uh, as our listeners may have noticed. 
but on Wednesday of last week, uh, the president signed an executive order to uh, promote and protect domestic manufacturing of uh, rare earth minerals. Uh, rare earths are essential in, in every electronic device, essentially, uh, electric vehicles, countless military applications, uh, smartphones, and the rest. The U.S. 30 years ago uh, dominated this market. We had, um, we had mines in the country uh, throughout and um, the ability to, to get at these materials. Well, now uh, China has flooded the market. Uh, Russia has flooded the market with these materials, including materials for uh, nuclear programs. Um, and we are now getting 80% of our imports uh, or 80% of our rare earths are imported from China. So the administration, give them credit. It will take a while, but they have started to try to turn that tide back. They made a direct investment from the International Development Finance Corporation in an uh, Irish facility to speed uh, development of those materials to the West. They have activated the Defense Production Act in the same way they did for manufacturing of ventilators to uh, uh, a mine, the last mine in the US, which is in California, to speed development of those so we can get a better handle on that critical supply chain for our economy and, and military going forward. Great. Thanks, Andy. And uh, the issue that I'm tracking uh, for this week is uh, with the president uh, in uh, the hospital with COVID, uh, we've seen uh, Mike Pence uh, just today uh, saying that the U.S. is fully prepared for any action that rogue actors may take uh, while the president's in the hospital. He said that he knows that there's malign actors around the world um, and the U.S., uh, both the State Department and our diplomats are fully prepared. Uh, he talked about uh, speaking with General Mark Milley, uh, the nation's highest ranking military officer as the chairman, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Um, obviously, there's something afoot uh, that uh, we don't know what it is. Um, in fact, uh, the secretary made clear that uh, uh, he wasn't going to talk about it, but he made sure the president was fully up to speed about what's going on around the world. Um, you know, you might imagine uh, that any one of our, uh, our adversaries, whether that's China, Iran, Russia, North Korea, might seem to take advantage of this moment. And that's obviously a significant concern. And so I think Secretary Pompeo very clearly signaling the world that the U.S. is watching, um, is prepared to respond, uh, as it should be. Um, but obviously, concerning moment now. And so uh, more to come on whether uh, foreign actors will seek to take advantage of this moment uh, as the U.S. president uh, is in the hospital. Um, of course, you always you have procedures uh, that, the, that, the, that the 25th Amendment allows for, uh, for the president to either cede authority to the vice president's acting president, um, or, uh, if necessary, for the cabinet to take action uh, with the vice president uh, to do so if necessary. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Zach Varda for research assistance, and Grant Haver for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.